Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 7th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There was a sigh of relief across the political spectrum when the Northern Ireland Secretary issued a statement on Friday stating there will not be a Stormont Assembly election in December or before the festive season. An election, um, uh, you know, it's not the ideal solution without a shadow of a doubt. The ideal solution is the executive reforming and these things being uh, being sorted out through uh, debate and, uh, and discussion. Um, but uh, the legislation is, is, is very, very straightforward. If the executive doesn't reform, I'll be call- I will be calling an election at one minute past midnight on the 28th of October and we will have an election. Well, a minute past night, midnight on the 28th of October has come and gone. No election has been called and uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, will outline to Westminster this week what his next steps will be. Let's speak to the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for Mid-East. Minister, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I take it uh, you were relieved uh, at the announcement made on Friday yourself. Yeah, but quite frankly, we'd be more relieved if the DUP decided to get back into government and deliver for the people of Northern Ireland with all the other parties that are in government. Uh, that's what we want and that's what our entire focus on uh, is on. And I think there's been quite a bit of distraction over the last few weeks, but I think everybody's, you know, objective should be uh, that there is an executive form in Northern Ireland that can deal with the day-to-day problems that we have here, that they have in Northern Ireland, that everybody has across Europe. Uh, that's really what I think the people want politicians to concentrate on, and I think it is a tragedy for Northern Ireland, and that's not happening at the moment. Did London consult with Dublin before the statement was issued on Friday by the Northern Secretary? Well, there would be ongoing discussions and consultations between London and Dublin. Um, we're trying to get them up to a more even keel. I think there has certainly been progress in the last few weeks and months, particularly under the Trust and now the Sunak administration. There's definitely a lot more contact. Uh, Minister Coveney has been in touch with uh, Secretary of State Eden Harris, Secretary of State Cleverly, Taoiseach, uh, 
uh, with Rishi Sunak as well. So there would have been a lot of discussion about this issue between those people. Um, and I hope that all of that would have fed into the decision that was made. But the decision that was made was certainly a decision taken by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Were you given advance warning, though? Well, I certainly wasn't because I'm the Minister for European Affairs. You'd have to ask Minister Coveney that. But, but as I understand it, um, it wasn't a complete surprise. Mm. Uh, and what's the logic behind it? Well, I suppose what we want to see happening is further space for talks um, mm. between the parties. I mean, if, if, if an election is called and there's a deadline set, I mean, the only thing that will happen uh, is campaigning. And what would happen in this type of an election is, yes, I'm absolutely sure that the people of Northern Ireland would want to focus on the day-to-day issues, but quite frankly, some of the politicians would retreat into flag-waving issues and, and, and constitutional issues that don't really um, butter any mm. parsnips, as the phrase goes. And, and that's what I'd be afraid. I, I, I would really be afraid that it would, it would entrench positions in Northern Ireland to make it even more difficult subsequently mm. uh, to have any kind of an administration there off the Good Friday yeah. institution. Well, listening to Chris Heatonhurst there a, a moment ago, uh, it's indisputably a, a U-turn on the part of the British government. Uh, is this U-turn uh, a breach of British legislation? Well, you have to ask the British that. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that, but we're happy that this has happened. Well, we uh, heard there that by law, uh, at a minute past midnight on the 28th, uh, he was obliged by law to uh, uh, to um, announce an election, to call for an election. I, I think uh, that's but now, now he seems to be saying that it's 12 weeks after that. Yeah, and I think that that might have been, there was an issue there about different dates. I think he definitely had a few more weeks if he wanted to call an election in January. That was definitely a possibility. So, look, we leave any legislation issues to the British, but they've done it before and they're well capable of doing it again, yeah. which is to change legislation to adapt to the position. And I think it's much better if the position is adapted. Uh, you know, changing position shouldn't be seen as a, mm. always a U-turn or always a problem. Changing position in this case, in my view, was, was good. Uh, and welcome, um, and it must give space not just for the issues in Northern Ireland to be resolved within the the, the executive parties or the, mm. the assembly parties, but also for the EU-UK talks to continue as well, which they are continuing, by the way, at the moment. And I think the problem is an election being called while those talks will probably still continue, unlike the last mm. time. I think they would be difficult, really. So, so it does give more space to them as well. And today, what's happening in London actually is that the EU-UK Parliamentary Assembly is meeting under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And that's really, really important where MEPs and British MPs and Lords are getting together uh, with British government figures, with Maris Sepkovic, to discuss the issues. And we need more and more of that. And quite frankly, during COVID, we didn't really have that. You know, we just yeah. we had a lot of distance and, and during the Brexit talks as well. So what you're gradually seeing, and you're seeing this between the Irish government and the UK as well, and hopefully now between the UK and the EU, is gradually more and more of a coming together between the two sides. And that can only lead to positivity, in my view. The more we talk, uh, the more we can actually look forward to results. Okay, but the British government can unilaterally uh, decide to to make this decision whether it is in line or not in line with British legislation. Is that the case? Or is there an obligation uh, to make sure and to protect one of the best achievements of the Good Friday Agreement under that agreement, which is, of course, devolved government? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's what I think they've done in this case, is try to protect that as much as possible by taking away uh, simply the electoral focus, because the electoral focus is, is not about government, it's about mm. parties trusting for position. But there's been no uh, government I'm, since February. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure that an election would have brought that any closer. What we have to see is, can we get, I think fundamentally, can we get an agreement between the EU and the UK that's seen really as a victory for everybody? We mm. can't have any losers in this negotiation. Uh, we must, you know, we've understood what our unionist friends are saying and some business people are saying in terms of 
difficulties they've seen with the protocol. The EU has come forward a year ago uh, with proposals to rectify that. Now we're finally getting down to serious talks over them. I'm quite hopeful uh, that if the political will is there, which it definitely seems to be more present than it was before, uh, that we can come to an arrangement between Britain and the EU that will actually satisfy unions. It won't satisfy everybody, mm. and there'll no doubt be people talking from the sidelines, but it will satisfy people and remove this idea that some kind of threat to people's identity, when in fact the opposite. Could this go on for another six months or a, a year if uh, they amend that legislation and extend out that deadline? But, uh, look, I'm, I'm certainly not going to try to predict anything in Northern Ireland, but, uh, I mean, if we don't get progress on the EU-UK talks, definitely things could, could roll on for a long time. So it's really, really important that we get progress, that the British government move. The EU have shown substantial movement. Those talks are taking place. And we do need to see a political will, I would say, on, on the part of the British to move things forward and to give reassurance to unionists, to give reassurance to those as well who want the protocol, who believe it's good to Northern Ireland, uh, and to try and get a win for everybody. Uh, and that will definitely help the process of putting a government in place. I mean, look, there's a democratic mandate there for the parties, there are institutions there. Mm. Parties need to start delivering for the people. And we, on the government side, whether that's the EU, the UK or the Irish government, can't give any excuses. And I, I firmly believe that if the protocol issues are resolved between the EU and the UK, there will be no excuses mm. for the party. OK, I'm sure that's the case. But uh, it's possible, is it not, that this could go on indefinitely? I'm not going to start predicting that, Michael, or start engaging in that. What we want is for it to end uh, as as soon as possible. Mm. And I, I, I can't see the patience of the people in Northern Ireland uh, remaining. If that if that were to be the case, I think people would be wanting a government. They would be wanting delivery of uh, support in the energy crisis. That we make want to make sure that there's jobs and investment. Mm. Um, and people need to to look past the sort of the really strident voices on the extremes in every particularly in the union side at the moment there's a huge amount of activity there uh, in terms of what people are saying on twitter what people are saying on social media and i think politicians and people who are involved uh, in northern politics need to remove themselves from that to some extent they need to say look what is our typical voter thinking of at the moment mm. and the truth is that the typical voter in northern ireland is thinking about the same issues that people all across uh, Western Europe are thinking about at the moment. I'm sure that's the case, and it seems to be one political party that's blocking devolved government. Uh, if there is no devolved government, there will be governance from London. Will there be also governance from Dublin? No, that's not on the agenda. Um, there's no provision for that, so it's, it's, it's not something that could possibly happen anytime soon. So, again, I think that fear needs to be off the table as well. Uh, it's been put out there, but look, our entire focus over all this time has been on getting the Assembly back up and running. Uh, where Dublin comes in is through the north-south bodies, which are mm. to the benefit of the people of Northern Ireland and the people of the Republic of Ireland. And then the East-West institution as well. I think it's really important the the British-Irish Council will be happening, and I understand that Rishi Sunak will be attending. That's really positive, because the last few meetings of that, there wasn't Prime Ministerial attendance, as I recall it. And I think that this will certainly add impetus to that and certainly shows an interest on the British side that's appreciated, but also gives reassurance as well uh, to those in Northern Ireland who, who fears one way or the other that this isn't sliding mm. one way or the other in terms of the constitutional position. It's entirely up to the people. And, and while, while the people haven't made that call, uh, the British government is absolutely involved there, but so is the Irish government in accordance with the Good Friday Agreement too. Yeah, but there are fears about direct rule from London, aren't there? Excuse me, sorry? I say there's fears about direct rule from London. 
Yeah, and that won't deliver for people. Yeah. Um, and no, nobody in Northern Ireland will have a say in that because nobody in Northern Ireland votes for, for the Labour Party or the Tory Party, uh, who would be the dominant parties in, in Westminster. So they'll have no say whatsoever in that. That would be good for nobody. Mm. Uh, there would be no focus in Northern Ireland. There would simply be some civil servant in London um, or in the Northern Ireland. Well, you, unionists may feel represented in Westminster. Is there not the scope under the Good Friday Agreement for joint rule? No, there's not. Uh, there is scope for consultation on issues that aren't devolved. So in other words, when you come together with the British Irish Council on issues that aren't left to, left to the Assembly in Northern Ireland, there is scope for Britain to consult the Irish government on. But in terms of issues that are for the Northern Ireland Assembly to deal with, which is the vast majority of issues, there's no, there's no role for the, for the Irish government. The, the, the role is actually for the people in Northern Ireland working together. Mm. Um, so there's, there's no scope for joint authority. That's not on the agenda. Um, and I don't think that unionist people should fear that. The, the only change will happen in Northern Ireland is if the people of Northern Ireland vote for it. It's not something that we would impose or it's not something we'll get involved in. Uh, it's not something the British government would be advocating for or against. Why not? Um, but, but what both governments should be doing is advocating for the entire community. Mm, but why is the Irish government stepping back and allowing the DUP to impose direct rule from London? But we're not stepping back. We're working. But with, you said you're are. not going to involve yourself in it. Uh, well, we're not. Well, there's it's no, another there's no way of putting it. Look, I mean, when I say that, I was an answer to your question as to whether it would be direct rule or mm. not. There won't be, and there will be some form of joint direct rule. That that won't be the case. Whether and some people may want that. That's that's a fine position to take. Um, well, it might might I mean, focus the minds of the DUP. Well, I don't, I don't think it's going to help if we start throwing in constitutional issues at this particular moment, uh, or threats. It's certainly not the way I would see it. And in any event, it would require an amendment of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I mean, clearly there are aspects of the Good Friday Agreement that need to be changed or amended. They're not going, nothing like that is going to happen. But is it a, a threat? Is it an attack on the DUP to say that there could be joint rule from Dublin and London? Or, or is it defence, uh, defending a position that they have taken, uh, defending the people of Northern Ireland against the position that they have taken, which is unacceptable because it's left people in Northern Ireland without a government? Well, I agree with you. It's totally unacceptable on the part of the DUP, but I also have to say as well, that there is no legal provision for joint authority. So if I was to come on your show and say, oh, we should do this, your next question is, well, how can you do it? And I'd have to say, well, there's actually no way of doing it at the moment. Okay. We, have the right to be, we have the right to be consulted uh, on issues that aren't, uh, aren't devolved. There are regular meetings now, and more, they're happening more frequently now, thankfully, uh, between Mr. Coveney and his counterparts in the British government, between the Taoiseach and Rishi Sunak. Yeah. It's really, really important. So we are mm. involved to that extent, uh, and they do talk to us, uh, and we have specific roles there. But fundamentally what we want is for the people of Northern Ireland to involve themselves uh, in their own administration. That means the DUP getting into government. And that mm. does require all of us working together. It does require pressure yeah. on the British government too. Well, they got and into the government. If there had been an election on the 15th of December, they'd have got into government and the position then would have been the same as it is now. They won't take up their seats. And if there's an election in January as things stand, or at least as things stand, as we understand what's being said publicly, there's going to be no change to that position. Well, well, that's what they're saying, and we've got to change that. And one way we can to give them no excuses is to finally resolve the protocol issues. And I think that requires the British government to come strongly to the table, to work really constructively with us, to make sure that we can't be saying, well, the British government haven't done enough. Like, quite frankly, I, I think legitimately been able to say for the last year and a half, um, we, we, we want to be in a position where we can say that, where we feel that everybody's come to a good agreement, and then that there's intense pressure then to say, right, you have no excuses now you need to get back into government. I'm not saying the two are, are linked, but mm-hmm. clearly there's a linkage being put there by the DUP. They shouldn't be there. 
Um, but that's a bit of a political reality at the moment. Okay. Um, is there something else that can be done? Uh, can the Dahan system be looked at? I, I'm not going to get into the detail of that now. That's uh, th- those issues are for 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 other people, Minister Coveney, the Taoiseach. But at the moment, with the Good Friday Agreement there, uh, and that's there, and that the Hunt system is there for a particular reason, mm. uh, which is to ensure that everybody gets, you know, value for their vote, that every yep. that it's an inclusive government, etc. So, you know, I'm not going to start speculating that, that would be changed because the next question is, well, then is it going to be less inclusive? What we want in Northern Ireland is inclusive. Uh, administration inclusive government of everybody hmm. but it would mean uh, I mean if, depending on how it was structured that there would be government rather than no government for Northern Ireland uh, and it would be as inclusive as people uh, choose it to be uh, that if elected they could take up their seats that would be their choice and if they choose not to take them that a government could be formed anyway well, there's lots of arguments for that, but unfortunately we have a history in Northern Ireland over many decades where Catholics were completely locked out of government, and we can't do that either to Catholics mm. or to... But it's not locking people out, is it? Well, we're not going to be the cause of locking people out of government, is what I would say. No, but the reality would be that people could choose to lock themselves out, or they could take their seats. Look, I think the the only way Northern Ireland is going to work, or the Assembly is going to work, if, if we have inclusive government of every single political viewpoint that gets a certain amount of votes, and that's what that has shown itself to work well. Um, people, look, you look back to a situation there where, you know, Martin McGuinness and, and Ian Paisley were quite happy to be photographed together. You see, mm. you remember back to the Battle of the Boyne site in 07 and 08 when Ian Paisley and Bertie Aaron shook hands. Mm. I mean, I want to get back to that. Like, it's not that long ago. Mm. Um, and, and the reality is that it's, sort of unimaginable at the moment that that would happen in that kind of atmosphere with, you know and, and it has happened within, within the last 15 years uh, it needs, it needs to, we need to get back to that and if we get back to that we can only bring good things to the people of Northern Ireland and really we're appealing to, 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 to the DUP in particular um, to, to stop listening to the extremes but listen to the, to the, to the moderates to, to, their, to their average median voter uh, that's who they need to listen to um, not to the people who are seem to be putting the frighteners on them or making them panic in different particular ways. Would you include Geoffrey Donaldson in that list? Well, well, what I would say about DUP politicians is that there certainly is... We've seen DUP politicians before welcome the protocol, for example, and say that, you know, it's the best of both worlds, and yes, in an ideal world they wouldn't have it, but they can work with it. We need to get back to that, because that's the reality, actually, uh, particularly if we can have successful talks. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of people now who are making their voices heard on the extremes of the political debate, particularly in the unionist side of Northern Ireland. And quite frankly, they need to be ignored. Uh, let them melt off, but they need to be ignored. Uh, and people need to get serious about politics. Mm. Are the British set to do a deal? I hope so. But again, the, the, what's happening there is mm. that the talks are taking place between the between the British and the EU. They've been taking place very, very quietly. They're highly technical mm. uh, at the moment. and there, There's a lot of speculation, of course, that that's why the elections have been postponed, uh, that they want to do a, a deal and then uh, try to convince uh, the DUP in particular to take up their seats and uh, see the restoration of Stormont. Well, that's the way I'd like to see things pan out. Um, but I don't have... Uh, I can't say to you today that that's what's happening. Um, but what I can say is that talks are taking place they're taking place in a constructive atmosphere. They're taking place on a technical level, but that's really important because one of the big stumbling blocks here is the computer system, and uh, whether the EU system can read the British system. Um, that hasn't really ever been done satisfactorily. So what's happening in talks is that probably IT people are probably talking to each other about how to mix in these systems. If we can actually, if we can get that issue solved, I think a lot of other things can be solved. So that takes a bit of time. I wish I wish it wasn't taking as long. 
Um, but it is a fact that those discussions are taking place, so let's, let's see how far they go. Okay. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, who is a Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, uh, more liberal licensing laws will result in pubs uh, being allowed to open from half uh, ten in uh, the morning until half twelve the following morning or that night, if uh, you prefer. Nightclubs will be allowed to stay open until six o'clock in the morning and there will be longer opening hours for shops and off-licences to sell alcohol as well. Of course, uh, um, on a broad theme, the public health doctors report to me um, who are turning their attentions not just for, with health protection but to the, the broader area of their training are concerned with the impact of alcohol in society. We've just talked about emergency departments. We know that a significant proportion of people sometimes who become acutely ill, for some of them uh, it, it's, it's a factor. So it, it, it contributes to acute illness and it contributes to chronic illness too. So um, clearly um, any, any public health strategy for, for, uh, for Ireland, uh, for alcohol, uh, has to recognise the more Ability, mobility associated with alcohol and uh, but public policy and this is a matter for the CMO to advise government and uh, our, our job is to provide care for people uh, provide them advice, keep them healthy and uh, give them the right advice about what, what, what constitutes healthy alcohol intake and our, our job also is to deal with the consequences of alcohol unfortunately in, 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 in hospital and community settings so uh, beyond seeing what, what public health advice is, any advice the government gets is from the Chief Medical Officer Right, so that's uh, Dr. Colm Henry, who is uh, the country's chief clinical officer. He was speaking at a HSE briefing last week. And when it comes to the consequences of alcohol, does that mean that if there's longer opening hours and more time to drink, will more people end up in emergency departments? Certainly, uh, yeah. Th- there's a link between access to alcohol and hours of link, uh, hours of um, availability of alcohol, it, whether it's through licensing laws or otherwise, and and the consequences of alcohol, whether it's acute intoxication or there's chronic alcohol, um, chronic alcohol or medical problems related to chronic alcohol intake. Um, so uh, clearly, we have an interest. We're a, we're a healthcare organisation. We're also an organisation that should be interested in health and the underlying causes of poor health, including alcohol, smoking, overweight, lack of exercise, whatever else leads people to become unwell. Dr. Colm Henry, the CMO. Let's speak to Dr. Sheila Gilhini, who's the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Dr. Gilhini, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Are you concerned about more liberal licensing laws in this country? Well, thanks, Michael, firstly, for having me on. And yes, you know, we would have a concern, you know, about um, both the increase in uh, trading hours, but also the the likely increase in density of uh, outlets uh, for selling alcohol because of changes to uh, the extinguishing of of previous licences if opening up um, a a new premises. So there's a number of different, you know, concerns that that we would have there. Now, we certainly do understand that, you know, the the previous uh, laws or the current laws, I should say, that are are there in place are complicated and, you know, there's a need for streamlining and uh, perhaps making and things you know a bit more straightforward for people to be able to to, to interact with. They with go the back system. to the nineteen thirties, I think, don't they? A very different country then. Yeah, they, they, they do, and, mm. and I understand. You know, there's there's just there's a multiplicity of different types of licences, and that that is mm. difficult for people to, to navigate through. So clearly, you know, we, we don't have any problem at all with you know modernising and streamlining of mm. of the application process. What we do have a concern with is, um, you, you know, we would say that there hasn't been a full 
examination of the public health consequences of making changes to the licensing hours. And, you know, if we take it right back, like, why do we have licenses in the first place? You know, this is no ordinary product. This is not the same as selling milk or selling lemonade or whatever. It's, it's, yeah. it's completely mm-hmm. different. And the reason that it's different is that, you know, we're, we're dealing with a substance that, that is harmful, that is intoxicating, that actually causes cancer, that is addictive in, in nature and, you know, has public health consequences. So we would be saying that before, you know, we go ahead with any changes uh, to our licensing system, that there really needs to be a full examination of the public health consequences of doing something like that. But are there there not real life uh, examples? Uh, I mean, we're pretty draconian uh, in the laws uh, that uh, apply for licensing in in this country. And all you have to do is look at any other European country, I think, uh, where it's possible to drink somewhere at some stage of the day or night. Yes, and when you look at, at other countries and particularly other European countries, you see very large levels of harm that would be there. Like we're constantly being told about this you know, kind of continental approach and actually I was mm. just looking at the figures for, for Germany. Germany's actually been described as one of the most addicted societies in, in the world. Uh, they have harms uh, that cost something of the order of 80 billion uh, annually uh, to their health service. So I, I think actually if we were to look you know, to examples of you know, where there's you know, good public health policy, it would be better to look to countries, for example, like Norway, which would have a complete ban, for example, on uh, alcohol advertising, which has a very, very uh, big impact mm. on, you know, the, I suppose, the, the, the level and the consumption and the use of alcohol uh, that, that we could see. So I would, I, I would say, you know, let's look, yes, at, at, at other countries. And again, when we look at other countries, we can see that when you do increase licensing hours, very unfortunately, you see an increase in, in the level of, of harms. Um, you know, there's, there's many studies that have been done on this in Australia, New Zealand, actually Norway, as, as I mentioned. And typically, the sort of thing you see is that, you know, for every extra hour of, um, you know, of, of, of licensing hours, uh, you see something like about a 16% increase in violent crime. Um, and you see, you know, attendant to that then, you know, increases in hospital admissions. So um, I, I think it is very important mm. that we look at this before, you know, going ahead with any legislation. And indeed, when legislation comes into place and that there is the opportunity, you know, perhaps for people to put in objections or whatever to look at this, we need to have a very... As, uh, what I would say is a statutory basis on which we're collecting the data around alcohol harms so that mm. we're able to actually measure what the impact of any such changes might actually be. Okay, so if you go out at 8 o'clock in the evening and generally go home, let's say, at midnight, uh, you think people's behaviour will change, uh, that they'll stay out longer? Uh, because I think the argument is that they probably will go home at the same time or go out later and come home that bit later. Uh, but those who would maybe finish work at 12 would be able to go out and socialise. I think this is where we need to actually look and look at the evidence of other countries and really then make an informed decision on that basis and look at it from a public health you know, perspective because you know, right now alcohol costs our health service 11% of its budget. Now that is just an enormous amount you know, that, that's there every year that, that, that we're, we're spending this amount of money and yet there's no central office which actually looks at all of that harm and, you know, looks at, say, the impact on the justice system, looks at the impact on family, looks at the impact, as I say, on on the health Mm. service. We need to be collecting all of that data and really relating it back to, well, what are the policies that we should have? So one of the things we would say is, you know, you can see that these licensing uh, proposed changes have come out of the Department of Justice, but it's the Department of Health that's left actually picking up the bill, you know, for that. Similarly, we see, um, you know, the Department of Enterprise putting actually... 
uh, giving incentives to alcohol industry, you know, through tax breaks and through investment and various things. And again, you'd say, well, that seems to be somewhat out of kilter with the idea that we have a public health policy that's saying we are looking to try and reduce the level of alcohol use by 20% in, yeah. in the country. So there's, there, you see all these policy mismatches and, you know, very incoherent policy uh, in, in in the area of, of alcohol. Mm. And that's why we would be calling for a central office, a statutory office for alcohol harm reduction that would look at all of these things in the round. Mm. Uh, and it may work both ways. I'm sure you remember when pubs used to close at uh, 11 and people would be going up ordering two, three, four pints at 11 allegedly to have left by half 11 because of the panic that the bar was closing. Or you'll remember uh, when it was illegal to serve alcohol or sell alcohol on Good Friday and people used to be uh, in the supermarkets filling up uh, shopping trolleys with alcohol on the Thursday. All of that's changed. People don't go to the bar and get four pints because there isn't closing time uh, and they don't fill up their trolleys uh, on the day before Good Friday. Yes, so that, that you know, you will see changes at different times because because of you know changes that have happened in in legislation. But I would come back to four people every day in this country die from alcohol. Four, that's a, you know that's that's an enormous number of people. If you were thinking of traffic accidents every day, killing four people, and you'd be saying, "Gosh, mm. we need to do something about that." And indeed, actually, when we look at something like you know road safety, yeah. you think of something like the Road Safety Authority, which has really changed. Um, you know, the level of, of uh, death and injuries yeah. on our road by taking an in-the-round look at all aspects of mm. that. And we're saying for something, for a substance that's causing the deaths of four people every day, we need to do something similar. Sure, but you understand the argument. I mean, if uh, people were getting four pints because the bar was closing and they don't get four pints now because the bar doesn't close, uh, could it be a, a case where people will be out and they'll say, Uh, I'm going home because I'm tired or I'm going home because I've had uh, enough to drink at this stage uh, rather than staying out until wherever they are closes. Well, you know, I would point to, well, let's look and see other countries and what they've done there. So in England, for example, the Licensing Act there, you know, enabled staggered, you know, closing times. And, you know, that and one of the stated aims of that was that, that would reduce violence and you wouldn't have people, for example, pouring out in the street at the one time or people trying to, you know, scold down pints, as you might say, you mm. know, at, at, at particular times. But actually what we found, you know, from there was that there was actually no change in the overall level of violence. It just got moved to later on in the evening. And there was actually an increase in hospital admissions um, you know, for people related to, to alcohol. So, I, 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 all I can ever do is point to the evidence and sure. where you can see it. You know where, where it is, and say I think we need to be very careful before making any further changes to our licensing laws. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning, Sheila. Much appreciated. So that's uh, Dr Sheila Gilhaney, who's the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland. Let me bring you just a, a couple of comments that have come to us uh, this morning. Tommy in touch with us uh, about the impasse in Northern Ireland. He says it, it, it won't make any difference at all if there's an election before, during or after Christmas for that matter because the DUP will do everything in their power to scupper the proceedings as much as uh, they can, no matter when the election is held. He says... It's a disgraceful situation. The DUP are a disgrace as a political party, simply hell-bent on causing as much disruption as possible. Tommy says he doesn't understand why the British government don't penalise them for their time-wasting antics. Thanks, Tommy, for that. Uh, somebody else in touch with us very early this morning about the €200 Euro electricity credit and asking if anyone else has noticed that since they got the €200, Euro, that 
their daily usage has doubled. I'm not sure what this means. Uh, perhaps if you're listening, uh, <laughs> you'll understand it better than me or maybe the caller uh, can clarify it. But they're saying that since they got their €200 Euro electricity bonus, their daily usage has doubled, even though they haven't made any changes themselves in how they're using energy in the house. Uh, as I am say, I'm not really sure I, I understand the question, but uh, I'm sure somebody listening to us will. And as always, we'd love to hear from you if you'd like to respond to that or if you'd like to make a comment on the programme. As always this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, thanks indeed uh, to uh, that uh, caller who's got back in touch with us, uh, and I, I think I understand it now. They say that they went from using around four fifty, four euro fifty a, a day on electricity, put the credit into the meter, and it now says that they're using between nine and ten euro a, a day. Yeah, well, I th- unfortunately, I, I think I understand uh, the point, uh, which is that's the way electricity prices are increasing. And I, I suppose that is why we're getting the credit to help us cope with those increases in prices. Thank you indeed, though, for WhatsApping us 86 658 or WhatsApp or text number 86 658 or you can phone us on 0419832000. We meet in Dublin in a spirit of ambition, enthusiasm, hope for the future. Today, we seize the day, chart new directions, capture opportunities that lie ahead. A new dawn is breaking in Ireland. We stand on the threshold of a new era. Friends, it's time for change. Change was the buzzword at the Sinn Féin Ordesh this weekend. Many reasons for change and many things Sinn Féin would change. That is if you change the government. Working together is the only way forward. Change can't be stopped by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Now so joined at the hip that it doesn't matter to them which leader is Taoiseach so long as it's one of them. Leo leaves, Michal goes in. Michal leaves next month, Leo goes back in. In, out, in, out. Political hokey pokey. <laughs> That's the cosy club, my friends, that has run this state for a century. Well, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have had their time. They've had their chance. It's time for a new government, a government of change, a government for the people. Change can't be stopped by the chaotic Tories in London either. I mean, they can't run their own country without bringing it to the brink of financial ruin. have no right to tell the people of Ireland how to run ours. Uh, change in government in uh, the South. That's Mary Lou MacDonald from her leader speech at the Ordesh uh, this week. And, uh, and also talking about, of course, uh, the situation in Northern Ireland and the British government's role in that. But as we've been discussing this morning, the impasse really is being created by the DUP. As you all know, the DUP are using the Brexit protocol as cover not to enter power and, and you also know that the real reason 
is because as an Irish nationalist, I will be at the helm as First Minister and everybody knows it. Mm. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be the case uh, if the DUP has their say, at least uh, that's uh, the impression you get from listening to Michelle O'Neill from her speech at the Ordesha over the weekend. We'll have more from the Ordesha and indeed discuss Sinn Féin's place in Irish politics north and south later in the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it was advertised that 22 people could rent a place to live in Drogheda, shared accommodation. Uh, You'd get one of four bunk beds, for example, in a room in the shared accommodation as one of the 22 people who may have looked to live in this house. Uh, The cost to live in a bunk bed with strangers, as advertised, was 500 a month. It's not illegal. I'm, I have rooms. Like, what is illegal about this? I have four rooms. I'm giving rent. Just two bunk beds and one bunk bed. That's it. I have four rooms in each house. Yeah. Two bunk beds and one bunk bedroom. So I have two one bed bunk bedrooms. Sorry about my English. But two one bed bunk bedroom. Bunk bed bed in a room. Yeah. Then the other one is two of them is two bunk beds, two of them is one bunk bed. That's okay. It. Uh, and they are going to, it's like a hotel. Yeah. And I'm giving all the services like cleaning service, kitchen towels and the things and the, you know. Yeah. Like sheets, pillows. Yeah. They don't need to do anything. Okay. They're giving breakfast. It's like a dormitory. Okay. And I'm not uh, making anyone like I'm not forcing them to come here. They can take, they can come, they can see. I'm not doing like the first time. No one like is not under bad conditions. You know, I don't like to show the rooms for you. Yeah, you will love it. Can I ask you what you're charging each of the people? Is it five hundred euro each? No, it is four hundred fifty. Okay, I I thought I saw on daft.ie five hundred euro. It was five hundred euro for the first month if they want to stay because it since it's not required deposit I don't know if they take something. Yeah. But if they're gonna stay like more than one month, it is four hundred fifty euro. And I have students in here, like two. I can give one of them and they can explain I'm not forcing them to stay in here. They are very happy and they were saying that it's lonely. Because somebody said that you would make ten thousand euro a month from rent. Yeah, but they are thinking that, like, I'm from the one house. They are thinking that from the one house, I'm putting 22 people in one house. I'm not, it's not like their business, how, how, how much I'm earning, but I'm not putting 22 people in it under a bad condition, you know? Yeah. That's what I mean, like, like they are saying people, as I said, like, they're all um, above 20, 25 so they can say they are not homeless, they are not miserable, they are all working. Yeah. So they can choose whatever they want to stay, you know. It is not the only option in the road like I mean, yes. this house is not the, or my other house is not the only option in the If they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. I'm not forcing anyone to stay with me. 
Not forcing anyone to stay there. €500 Euro a month, take it or, or leave it. Uh, some people will take it, uh, the landlord uh, believes, uh, because it's a better option than being homeless. Uh, the landlord there, Yagmer Koskin, uh, who, who took a call from me last night. Apologies uh, for the poor sound quality on that. We had hoped that Yagmer would join us today, but she says she's only out of bed uh, and may talk to us later. Uh, Labour Party TD, Jed Nash is on the line. Good morning to you, Jed. Thank you indeed uh, for joining on the programme this morning. You have serious concerns about this. I have, uh, not just do I have uh, serious concerns, but uh, my constituents do as well. Um, I woke up yesterday morning, Michael, to a a flood, um, a torrent of messages, um, screenshots sent to me by dozens of constituents through various social media platforms and by email um, complaining about this um, advertisement on Daft.ie, an advertisement that was actually taken down uh, subsequently, probably because of the public outcry. Now, the ad certainly gave the distinct impression, and it's there on social media for people to see. Uh, the ad itself has been taken down, but there are screenshots on, on various sites. The ad gave the distinct impression that the full capacity of this house... Now, this is a, 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 a what might be described as a family house that has been extended over the years. Um, the, the, you know, the impression was given that the full capacity of this house is 22 uh, persons. Now, uh, I, I, I've, I've heard uh, the, the, the uh, excerpt there from the um, promoter of the property, and she obviously disputes that, but the distinct impression was given uh, in the ad posted on daft.ie that the full capacity of this property was 22 homes advertised at €500 per person, uh, regardless of what the the promoter of the property says. That's what the um, the, uh, daft.ie ad initially said. So regardless of whether it's 22 or 10 or however many, this is a pretty pretty unprecedented um, tour of events for, for a, a property mm. in Drogheda. It's really caused genuine outrage. You know that yourself. You've seen the traffic on social media. This is a property that was bought bought for €275,000 just a few short uh, months ago. An adjoining property went for much less just a couple of short years ago. Um, this property had been on the rental market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Previously, 
as a single family unit, if I can describe it as that, a, a standard traditional home, and uh, the average uh, the rent being charged, and this is all data that's published online, it's available for anybody to see. Uh, the charge was €1,800 per month. So do the maths and you can see what the uh, landlord was hoping to make uh, from uh, the investment in this particular property. So I've been in contact with Loud County Council. They're the um, compliance agency, compliance authority for private rental accommodation in County Loud. They will be carrying out compliance checks to ensure that um, no regulations or laws have been breached. Uh, in terms of overcrowding, Michael, um, the law is relatively silent on overcrowding and that's something that does need to change. In fact, there's a 2018 Fianna Fáil bill uh, introduced to actually overtly, explicitly define what, what overcrowding constitutes. Um, that's still languishing uh, at a third stage in the law and the government has done nothing about it. Um, it seems as well that the property isn't currently registered with the Residential uh, Tenancies Board now. To be fair, uh, until such time as uh, tenants actually occupy uh, a a property, uh, that's not required. So I would hope that the landlord uh, is preparing to be compliant. Okay, I think I I I heard Yagmar uh, say two students are are living in the property at the moment. Well, if that's the case, then the property does need to be registered with the OTB. By law. So that would be by law. By law. It's illegal to rent out without registering with the Residential Tenancies Board. Uh, And I I want to um, expand on that point uh, because you mentioned uh, the previous rent. Uh, When I was speaking to Yagmar last night, I did point out that the property, the same property we're talking about, was advertised between the 15th of June 2020 and the 28th of September 2020 for €1,800 a month. Uh, And we have rent pressure zones uh, and they were 4% uh, reduced to 2%. Now, if it was 1,800 and there are only 10 people, or the intention was to house 10 people uh, at 500 a month, you'd be going from 1,800 to 5,000. Uh, and that would exceed those legal limits if there's 22 people uh, were close to 12,000, isn't it? 11,700 or something like that. Yeah, we can do, do the maths and, and, and see uh, the, the big the big jump there. Uh, of course, when, when a property does change hands, it could be open to the um, landlord under law to change the rent. But the point here, uh, Michael, is this, that it seems from what... Um, from the, 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 the conversation that you had with the uh, promoter of the property uh, that the intention appears to be to transform what is a standard extended family home on the Mullen Road Drahada into a, and, and these are the words that I think she used herself and correct me if I'm wrong hostel or dormitory type mm. accommodation. That in itself would require a change of use from Loud County Council um, so there may be issues there for Loud County Council to interrogate and examine yeah. with the uh, with the landlord. Uh, the reality is that it is an area that is well established. It's mature. Um, generally, there are um, you know, uh, bungalows in the Rutmullen Road, uh, duplex uh, apartments in some cases, and one, one estate or duplex development. Um, there's also you know, two-story homes, mostly two-story homes on, on, on the road. So this would set a precedent uh, in an area like that. Uh, residents of uh, Highbury and Mullen Road more generally would have something to say about that. But let's get to cancel it as well because if you're actually changing the use of a property you require planning permission from the county council to do so, and there will be question marks then about compliance with the development plan. Uh, there are no hostel or dormitory type or bed and breakfast style accommodation 
uh, units in uh, that area that would set a precedent and something that I'm sure would be uh, of concern to the county council and, and local residents. So and she suggested that it, it was dormitory style uh, accommodation uh, and that this hostel, if you like, uh, that she had hoped to establish would be different from renting out a, a flat because you wouldn't have to do anything. She was talking about the services that she would provide, clean linen and changing beds and towels and that sort of thing. Um, would that be a, a normal kind of going rate for hostel accommodation um, with clean sheets, 500 a month? I, I, I would have no idea. Um, and, and this is the point that I made earlier, Michael. This is unprecedented in the Drogheda context. Do you think people would pay that much for a bunk bed in a house on the Rathmullen Road in Drogheda? The question I'm coming to is, are, are things that bad? Are, pe- are people that desperate? Exactly, and this goes to the number of the problem. My, my, my clinic starts uh, at half ten on, on a Monday morning, and mark my words that the bulk of the cases I'll be dealing with this morning, as I always do on a Monday and a Friday when I'm doing clinics, relate to housing and people's absolute desperation to get a roof over their head, a sustainable roof over their heads. Um, and frankly, there are some landlords operating in the market at the moment who are exploiting the situation. Uh, who are exploiting the housing crisis and exploiting the people who are caught up uh, in, in a housing crisis. And I think we can all draw our own conclusions in terms of, of, of what's, what's, what's going on here. The reality is this is out of kilter with market rates in Drogheda, um, but there's a desperation uh, that people have. Um, and we know that it's the low-paid uh, people who are poor, um, people who are struggling, and people who are in difficulty who will access... Uh, accommodation of this nature that might be cheaper uh, mm. than what it is they can well, obtain. What, what did you elsewhere. make of that argument, though? You don't have to take it. Uh, you know, it's a, a lovely house. You decide to take it. If it suits you, you can go somewhere else. It, it, she's not forcing anybody. Well, you see, um, this, this is where the question of social responsibility and, and, and ethics comes into it um, and, and, and respect for the law, essentially. Uh, and this is what I'm saying. I mean, this, this is an unprecedented type of development in this area. Uh, if you're developing a hostel or, or, or a dormitory, you, you do it in an area where the development plan can accommodate that. Uh, you do it uh, in compliance with all of the laws that are set down in relation to dormitory and hostel style development, for example. Uh, the council emailed me back yesterday evening to say that they would be very interested to uh, examine this property from the perspective of compliance with fire safety. Uh, if there are a particular number of people in an accommodation, you know, are there appropriate fire exits? Are, are there appropriate um, you know, supports and so on there to make sure uh, that the place is safe? We don't know that. And I'm not saying whether it is or is. It's not my job to say whether or not it is in compliance. That's going to be the county council's job. But they are very clear and have been clear to me uh, yesterday evening that they're taking an interest in this. Okay. They're the regulatory authority and whatever about uh, the laws that might apply to uh, a property like this, um, the reality is that this does not sit well with me, it does not sit well uh, with people locally. Uh, uh, there are uh, social and ethical questions as well uh, about this kind of approach. Jed Nash, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Jed Nash is a Labour Party TD for Louth and East Meath. Time now to talk about climate change and uh, the destruction of the planet and if that can be prevented and what will happen in Egypt at COP27. It's been 
so so obvious to me that I I say it, I tell it as it is. I don't try to package any message in order to fit anyone else's view, in order to please anyone. Um, I don't care if if this is something that you can like on Facebook or not. Um, so I do think that many people appreciate that, and I don't think that even though many of the communication experts say that we need to be optimistic in our reporting and we need to communicate in an optimistic way, in a positive way, um, that doesn't really go in line with the fact that we are facing an existential crisis. And I just think that it's it's that this, this cognitive dissonance that we say one thing and then act in a, in a completely different way, um, I think that people don't really know how to react to that. At least that's that's how I reacted in the beginning, um, because I thought that if, if they're saying this is an emergency and yet they are not acting as it, or like, and yet they are still saying that everything will be fine, um, I thought that, then how can the climate crisis be real? Mm, that's a good point, isn't it? Uh, that's Greta Thunberg. Let's go to Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt now, where Jenny Salmon is on the line. Good morning, Jenny. Thanks for joining us. Jenny is the Climate Youth Ambassador with Concern Worldwide. Slightly older, I think, uh, than Greta Thunberg, but I imagine on the same page to some degree. Hello, Jenny. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> yes. I, I was saying you're, you're just slightly older than Greta Thunberg. Uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm 20, so just a little bit older. But I remember I, I was still in school when she was first kind of becoming prevalent and doing her school strikes. And I went to the one in Dublin when it was on. Yeah. Um, the strike that she did, she kind of organised here. So, yeah, no. Okay. Well based in her message, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, um, I, I make the comparison, and I hope you don't mind me making the comparison, uh, because uh, you're both young people who, who are very... Uh, uh, active and motivated uh, by the concerns uh, that there are for the planet uh, and uh, I think a lot of people would know Greta Thunberg uh, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've ended up in Egypt this week and bringing a message to the world's leaders on behalf of the Irish people. Sure, so I suppose we're similar in the sense that I suppose yeah, we both are young people who are now involved in climate but before this is concerned, you know, I, I really am not a climate expert um, you know, I don't know everything that there is to know about climate. So I suppose that's why I decided to kind of try and take on this role because I just think it's quite important that people see that you don't have to be an expert to be able to speak out about the climate and to get involved in the dialogue and everything that, you know, that needs to change mm. about climate. You just, you don't have to be an expert. And I think that's where kind of we're going wrong because, you know, it's almost as if, oh, well, I can't be perfect. I'm not vegan. I'm not this. I'm not that. So I just won't bother at all. So I suppose that's kind of my approach. I, I definitely am not an expert, but just really excited to learn lots at COP27 mm. and kind of, yeah, take away a lot of uh, stuff that we can bring back here to Ireland. In fact, you're studying law in Trinity, uh, I think, uh, and you're there on behalf of Concern. Uh, what is the message that you'll be bringing to people at COP27? Um, so I suppose the main thing that I've taken away from Irish young people um, is just kind of like looking at the people who are suffering from climate now. So I think there's such a thing of thinking that it's a future problem. Um, and I know like our generation has inherited this problem and like we're going to have to tackle it. But I think it's it's happening right now too. So, you know, when you see like in parts of the Horn of Africa right now, terrible famines happening caused by droughts, caused by climate, where the flooding in Pakistan is happening. You know, all of these things are effects of climate change. And Right now, like, we have to look at how are we going to fix this going forward, um, you know, and have more support for the people who are suffering the most now. 
Um, and then I suppose the other thing that our young people, I think, are focused on is really championing the local approach. So mm. um, kind of empowering like a community-led climate action. So you know how we have like tidy towns? Mm. Um, I think it'd be amazing if we could have, so with our like national carbon targets, there's no transparent data or even like any data available to kind of say which towns, like where where is all this carbon emission coming from? Um, so if it was like tidy towns where it was like, say, you could say, okay, well, Drogheda has, X amount of carbon emissions and I'm from Bray so okay Bray has this many then it, I think it would encourage more people in their personal life to kind of make changes because you could kind of see clearly that it is impacting our our entire kind of nation's carbon emissions Okay uh, and that's fine talk there's been a lot of fine talk uh, I think since Paris uh, and possibly even before then, but is it all blah, 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 uh, as Greta Thunberg said last year about COP26? Uh, will COP27 result in more blah, blah, blah? Because uh, if you look at what happened in Scotland, 165 nations promised to reduce emissions, just 29 have. Yeah, sure. I know that statistic is really scary to look at because, you know, it's, oh, yeah, all these countries agreeing to step up their climate actions, but then not actually following through with like kind of ambitious plans is it is definitely disheartening. Um, but I suppose my response to that is just that, you know, at the moment, COP and like COP26, COP27, it is the only kind of like forum that we have where global leaders and policymakers will be asked. So as much as it is just kind of disheartening to think about how little has happened following on from COP26, I think it's really important to remain hopeful and to think that, you know, something good will come out of it. Because if we just completely abstain from it, then, you know, if there's even less chance of anything mm. happening at all. Um, so I suppose that would just be my response to that. Um, yeah. mm. Okay, but if uh, cities are washed under sea uh, because of flooding or whatever the consequences are in the coming years, is it uh, enough just to uh, help uh, restore uh, the infrastructure I- in those countries uh, to put our, our, our money into helping solve the problems after the event or should we be doing something to prevent them from happening? I suppose that's the big question or is it both because there's talk of loss and damage finance and the Irish government, I think the Taoiseach is going to say it in his speech uh, to COP27 that Ar- Ireland will contribute to such funds uh, to help uh, rebuild places when uh, they're impacted like this. For sure, yeah. No, I, I know to rebuild it's important, but like you said, it is like right now that like, you know, we need the kind of financial support. So, you know, there's no chance of fixing all of the kind of climate catastrophes that are happening right now across the world if there isn't more meaningful financial contribution. So, yeah, I definitely I definitely think, um, you know, like looking at even like adaptation in like agriculture and stuff, more investment into that. Um, and yeah, so definitely climate finance is something that's really important. So, yeah, it'll be great to hear the Irish delegation talk about that today. Very good. I think, Jenny, you said you're going to be expressing the views of young Irish people in Egypt over the coming days. If you were expressing the views of your parents' generation, what would you be saying? Would it be something different? Um, I suppose. I, I mean, there definitely is a different approach in how kind of different generations look at it, because I suppose it is young people who kind of will be living with the effects of climate change like going forward. So um, I think there's maybe more of a sense of urgency from younger generations um, than there might be from older. Um, but I, I do think it's something that every generation should care about. And, you know, like as, as it gets worse and worse and the climate keeps getting warmer, you know, it's only going to get worse, the effects that we're seeing um, at present. So, yeah, I think, I think definitely it's something that every generation should care about. 
would I be right in thinking that the older generation say, uh, yeah, we want to save the planet, uh, but let somebody else do the heavy lifting uh, because we can't afford to do it right now? Um, I'm not. I've, I'm not in the older generation, so I'm, I can't comment. <laughs> I don't know. I'm afraid. I am. I think that's the reality <laughs> of it. Well, it's, I can't agree. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah, uh, I mean, it does. Seem, I mean, if you look at the sectors and the um, reductions uh, that are, are asked uh, under the climate action plan here, uh, everybody agrees in principle, but everybody thinks that their sector is being uh, asked to do too much, particularly agriculture, which seems to be the biggest offender of all. Yeah, sure. I suppose, um, you know, like it can feel like certain areas are targeted more than others, but I think that's, it's, you know, agriculture does kind of, yeah, I suppose, be uh, like targeted, I suppose, because, you know, climate adaptation is so important for kind of countries in the global south where, you know, like famines are happening because of drought. So I suppose finding more drought resistant farming techniques and things like that. So, yeah, I, like I suppose there is a bigger focus on that, but maybe that's just kind of where where people are seeing that it's, it's needed most for especially in drought. So yeah, definitely definitely there. Um yeah, things things need to change. But I think every every kind of sector of of life I suppose needs effect. So I think what's most interesting, like at COP on Dublin, that concern held in Great Gorman, I find it fascinating to see that, you know, most people are um you know, whatever they're interested in is the area of climate that they tend to want to kind of look at. So mm. say there was another young person she was there and I was talking to her and she was kind of coming from an environmental science background, like she studies it in college. So for her, what she was looking at was, you know, biodiversity and farming and all that kind of stuff. And whereas for me, like I don't really have a scientific background at all. So for me, it's the yeah. human cost that kind of makes me feel passionate about climate. So I think it's just about people finding their niche and, you know, what are you good at? What, what are you interested in? And mm. then finding something to do with the climate that you can focus on there. Um, And uh, I take it as a a representative for concern. You'll be looking at the impacts of climate change on uh, people in third world countries. Uh, In Pakistan, for example, uh, where emissions are next to nothing in comparison to some of uh, the bigger countries, but 33 million people affected by floods. Uh, On the other hand, no rain in the Horn of Africa for four years and uh, millions face uh, starvation as a a result of drought. Uh, And that comes back to what we do in countries like this country where we're driving petrol and diesel cars and putting all sorts of emissions into the atmosphere and um, uh, rejecting the idea that we need to reduce the national herd and so on. Sure, yeah. No, I, I think definitely, I think there's a kind of sentiment in Ireland that, you know, oh, sure, like our emissions are so low. We haven't, you know, but yes, they might be low, but we're contributing so much and, you know, kind of by all of the, I suppose, imports that we get and everything, you know, like we, we really do kind of fuel, you know, the countries that kind of contribute the least um, to keep on, like, suffering, I suppose, yeah, because of the way that our, you know, we have a very throwaway society and, you know, there's not really, not really much kind of, I suppose, awareness that what we're doing is really affecting people in places where they haven't contributed to climate change. So for sure, yeah, okay. definitely agree with you there. 
All right. Well, look, thank you indeed uh, for taking the call from us this morning. Much appreciated, uh, Jenny, and good to talk to you. Uh, Jenny Salmon is 20 years of age. She's uh, the Climate Youth Ambassador with Concern Worldwide. She's in Sharam El Sheikh, where COP27 is now underway. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks to Stephen who phoned us uh, this morning saying extended licensing hours will only increase uh, the problems that we already have with alcohol in this country. As a a nation, we've always had a a problematic relationship with drink. Giving people even more access to booze will only add to those problems. People will drink for longer simply because they can. At least set closing times mean that the access to drink is shut off to people at some point. Thank you, Stephen, for taking the time to call us and share your thoughts with us and in touch with us about uh, that house for rent to 22 people at €500 Euro a month, saying she was shocked to hear the details of that story and wondering if uh, there's safety and fire regulations that can be looked at. How are people expected to live like this uh, while other people are growing wealthy uh, as a result of it? Uh, she says uh, it's disgusting. Somebody else in touch with us on WhatsApp saying uh, they wonder about fire safety regulations and if uh, there's a certificate in place. I think Jed Nash said that's something that Loud County Council is going to take a look at. Thank you though if you have been in touch 086 1800 658. If you want to WhatsApp or text us that's 086 1800 658. Phone us on 041 983 2000. Email michael at lmfm.ie. As you've been hearing this morning on LMFM's news Meath Women's Refuge has launched its Christmas appeal. Let's speak to Paula McNulty, who's the team leader with Meath Women's Refuge. And a very good morning to Paula, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I hope everybody uh, listening to us this morning will help if they can and respond to your appeal because uh, it's always a a difficult business to raise money uh, working in uh, this field of uh, domestic violence. Hi, Michael. Uh, yeah, um, thanks for having me here, firstly. Um, yeah, it's, um, it is a very busy time around December, January for us. And um, I suppose half our funding, uh, our fundraising comes from um, our Christmas appeal. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's hard to get funding. Um, yeah, so we're delighted to to have the opportunity to talk about it here. Yeah, I take it uh, you could never raise uh, enough money. Unfortunately, uh, the reality of, of life, uh, you've eight units, uh, I think, uh, that you can make uh, available uh, as crisis accommodation to give women and their children some refuge if uh, they find themselves in such a, a violent situation. That's it. Um, and last year, just to give you an idea, we um, provided crisis accommodation for uh, 46 families in those um, and those eight units. Nice. And so, um, you know, and we do, it's not just the crisis accommodation that we have. We have an outreach service as well that yeah. provides one-to-one support to people in the community. Um, and they go to court with people um, and they have groups. And we have a specialist children's service as well. And they provide... Um, services to children in the refuge and in the community mm. um, to help them get through the trauma of what they experienced. Mm. And um, yeah, we've allowed with the helpline as well, 24 hours. Um, last year we took 
1,684 referral calls, so it was a lot. We were very busy here. Right. And we also have counselling sessions for the women, counselling sessions for the children. And the majority of that, so the counselling sessions for the children, um, you know, the funding that we get, um, it helps us uh, run the the units so we don't get funding for electricity or maintenance of our building. So fundraising is really important for us um, in that situation. Uh, The women as well, we have the vouchers that we get. We get a lot of donations of vouchers when we, um, from at Christmas time especially, which lasts us for a good few months. And that gives um, money for the women to go out and buy food for themselves and their children and buy clothing because often they turn up here with with very little. So it's uh, the generosity is is fantastic. I take um, it though you're not always able to accommodate them. No, um, unfortunately, that's a that's a really difficult part of our work when we get calls from from people and we're not able to offer them refuge. Um, we have, you know, we turn away well over 200 women so far this year. Um, but we don't, we like, when we get the call and we can't accommodate them, we try and call other refuges and see what's out there. Um, like, we never leave anyone stuck. But, yeah, unfortunately, we, with eight units, we can't accommodate everyone. That's an awful lot of people, 200. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, different, yeah. Uh, and how would you describe the situation they were in? I'm sure it differed uh, across so many people, uh, but would you say that some people were in real danger in a, a real crisis situation? Yeah, sometimes they're the really difficult calls that we get um, when when women call and they're actually in the situation and, you know, they might be hiding in the in a shed or upstairs in a bathroom or, you know, they're they're the really difficult calls. Um, other other times, they might have been able to get out. They might be with a friend. They might be with the Gardaí. Um, so um, they're all difficult, but I suppose they're all very high risk. And um, it's yeah, it's uh, it's a tough time for for those for those families. Mm. Um, and yeah, it it can be very dangerous for them and the children. Yeah, very difficult. And uh, the children, of course, really um, are caught up in this. Uh, it's hard to understand uh, how children can be put in danger. And quite often uh, that danger is uh, posed uh, by their parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is. And it's very confusing for them. It's, you know, however hard it is for us to get our head around, um, it's very difficult for the children. Um, so it's great, you know, when they come in here, they're... Um, we can see them there, you know, staying close to their mom and they're very afraid. And then when they're here a few weeks, it's great to see them running around the place. They love the children's room, um, you know, and they, with that support and with feeling safe, they're like different kids when they leave. Uh, so that's a really lovely part of our work, seeing that, okay. um, seeing the change. Okay, we should mention uh, your support line. Uh, that's open, you say, 24 hours yeah. a day? Yeah. 24 hours a day, yeah. Um, we're always here, even even Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, we're here. Um, mm. And we have, yeah, we have um, someone here manning it all the time. And uh, we get calls from, from family members as well who are, you know, they're, they're looking for advice on how to help maybe um, their daughter or their sister or mom. Um, mm. So it's not just for, for people who are, are in that crisis situation, but it's for people mm. as well who are, looking for support. Maybe they want to find out about the court process. Um, they might 
uh, want to know about refuge so they can pass that information on as well. But yeah, if there's any women out there, um, any families who are going through it, uh, we are here to help and we're here to take the call at any time. Okay, could be the best call you make for yourself or your children. Uh, 046 046 The website is DV, which is for domestic violence, www.dvservicesmeath.ie uh, and all of that information, of course, available from the radio station. You're launching your Christmas uh, appeal today. Uh, you'll do a, a lot with that money in terms of uh, the services you provide. Uh, we'd also be hoping uh, to make it uh, a somewhat more... Uh, pleasant Christmas in particular for the children uh, as uh, the uh, festive time approaches. If people want to to donate uh, they can do that uh, obviously through your website I take it? That's it, yeah. They can do it through our website Um, and um, yeah um, I know you mentioned the DV services meet.ie and um, yeah all the information is there about the Christmas appeal. Okay, very good. Well uh, we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed Paula uh, and thanks for telling us about the invaluable services you provide unfortunately to so many people uh, and uh, best of luck with the appeal I'm sure people will be delighted to support Paula McNulty as the team leader with Mead Women's Refuge Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM The demand for change is strong and growing with the energy of a generation impatient to claim their future to achieve a new Ireland. 100 years ago, Ireland was traumatised by partition, divided by bitter civil war. A century on, we strive for a nation that honours and learns from its past, but isn't held back by it. This spirit for change was so powerfully expressed in May's assembly election. Sinn Féin emerged as the largest party. And... For the first time, a Republican, a nationalist, a woman from Tyrone was elected as First Minister in... In a state, elected in a state designed to ensure that it could never ever happen with friends It did. Michelle O'Neill, a First Minister for all. Maybe so, but Michelle O'Neill is not First Minister. She's First Minister-designate, and uh, that's as a result of the impasse and the DUP not taking up their seats. If you're listening to Thomas Byrne earlier in the programme, you'd have been left with uh, the clear impression that for the foreseeable future, at least, uh, there's going to be direct rule from London. The people of the North deserve, need, demand a government that works for them. This stalemate can't continue. British government dithering must end. They must immediately bring clarity. A timetable for concluding negotiations with the European Union and the restoration of the executive. But whatever happens, be clear that direct rule from London is not an option. Mary Lou MacDonald speaking in her leader's speech at Sinn Féin's Ord Esch over the weekend. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, who's on the line. What was your party leader on about there? It was clear that there's no option for joint rule or, or dual uh, uh, leadership from Dublin and London uh, when we spoke uh, to Thomas Byrne earlier in the programme. Well, firstly, Mike, the Good Friday Agreement and the entire 
peace process, uh, which is uh, 25 years in place now, um, is has set out, you know, is about building blocks towards the future. It's not about reverting to the past and direct rule from London is reverting to the past and it's just not acceptable. Well, what are you going to do about it? I mean, well, Mary what does that Lou mean? Actually, well, Mary Lou has actually called for a joint authority between Dublin and London. Yeah. You know, whether you want to use the word partnership or joint authority, but you can't have a situation. I mean, at the minute... There's no executive up north, there's no assembly, mm. and there's not even a caretaker ministers, you know, and that's in the face of unprecedented cost of living crisis. Mm. And it, I mean, everybody knows, let's be perfectly honest here, yeah. everybody knows it's because the DUP didn't get the results they wanted in the election. And okay. it's also because there's no longer a unionist electoral majority. The point of putting to Mary you, though... said, for the first time ever, a nationalist, a Republican, Michelle O'Neill, is First Minister designate. That's what it's about. It's about the power struggle. It's okay. about wanting to dominate. The point of putting to you, though, Imelda, is that Thomas Byrne told us this morning that there is no scope for a joint authority. Well, you're in exceptional circumstances now if the DUP continue to block the Assembly. If there's an agreement on the implementations of the protocol, right, and the DUP still refuse to, mm. to form an executive and to get it up and running to work yeah. for the people that they represent. Right? It's not that exceptional. It's not that exceptional. Well, I mean, it's well, nine months at this stage. There hasn't been governance in Northern Ireland since uh, February. Uh, but it was two years when Sinn Féin last walked out. Well, there was, there was perfectly good reasons for that and they have been addressed and Sinn Féin have made it abundantly clear mm. and everybody knows that, that we're up for business, we're up for power sharing and that everyone will be treated equally. But what the, you're back to the DUP. Mm. And if the, the British government, it's as simple as this, the British government, if the, the implementations of the protocol get sorted, and if at that stage the DUP still refuse or still continue to boycott the, the Assembly, you know, and fail their own people by failing to represent them and get measures through that will help them in a cost of living crisis, then the British government have to recognise that for what it is, that the DUP are not prepared to recognise the elections and the democratic decisions mm. of the people. So in those circumstances, that's exceptional. I mean, okay. that's exceptional. Okay. And they, they need, the British government need, with the Irish government, mm. need to sit down and come up with, an, a, you know, some sort of power sharing because it can't be directly ruled from London. Okay, well, Sinn Féin was was standing taller, I think, this weekend uh, and came across very confident. Uh, So what do you expect to hear uh, when the British government maps out its next steps this week? Uh, And if it doesn't match your expectations, what then? Well, we've made it very, very clear to um, the Secretary of State that they have a responsibility to help the political situation and that the current vacuum is just, it simply can't continue. And that will continue to be our message to the British government and to the Irish government and to the US administration. Will an election in January be acceptable? Well, it depends. If the protocol, if the, the issues around the protocol are sorted, there is no reason on God's earth why the DUP can't go in. Well, the there'll be the no same the, the, other than the reasons I've. Yeah, they're the same reasons that apply today. They're the same, but they're the same reasons yeah. that apply today that will apply in, yeah, in January. And you know they've drawn a line in the sand, all that sort of stuff. If they don't take up their seats, uh, whether it's an election in December or January or in June or whenever it is, uh, what 
solution is there to that? Is it abolishing the DeHaan system? No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, the system is there, right? The system is there. But you can't have a government without the DUP, and if the DUP won't take up their seats, you won't have a government. Yeah, well, that'll be their choice. And that's what but then the that means no to, government. No, but hold on a second. That's what the British government have to recognise and have to, to come to terms with. That if there's no obstacle in relation to the protocol mm. in the path of the DUP and there has been an election or there will be another one that will churn out the same results and the DUP continue to refuse to set up assembly and yeah. to do the job that they were, they asked the people to vote for them to do you want to threaten them. To you want to no, threaten them with I joint authority. That 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 the, the Irish government in Dublin would uh, play a role in, in the governance of Northern well, Ireland. That's, that's not that's not threatening them. Well, that's you know that would get under their that. skin. Well, I mean, they're they're just being, in my opinion, in my personal opinion, they're playing their usual bully. But if you know, if you know, it would get under their told. skin. It is a threat, isn't it? It's look. It doesn't take much to get under their skin. The very fact that Michelle O'Neill. A nationalist or yeah. Republican was the first I minute mean, that has crawled under their skin. Is it, the bit, is, it, is, the, is it not they, a bit weird that Sinn Féin wants Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to lead in Northern Ireland? Sinn, Sinn Féin have said that there's a, if, if they continue to boycott, if the DUP continue to boycott, then there should be a joint power sharing on the, in the North because the DUP, if they continue to block, mm. you have people, there's, there was, families are struggling to pay their energy bills. There's was yeah. money that was forthcoming. That's been blocked. And so it, people are left in lib- Their own people are left the, if, if the impasse is solved, undoubtedly Michelle O'Neill will be First Minister. Uh, when do you expect Mary Lou Macdonald to be Taoiseach? Well, I mean, we've a lot of work to do and we're working very, very hard. And our, our, our desh on Saturday set out the, our plans for the future and the ambition that we have to build a, a better, stronger and fairer country and we intend to do that but we'll work very hard between now and when the next election is called. I think the next election, mm-hmm. if the government, you know, if, if things run its full course, I think it's February 25. Yeah. But in the meantime, Sinn Féin will keep working hard trying to get policies through, trying to get the government mm-hmm. to change. And continue to you take know. questions about the IRA. Well, I mean, you see, you have people that constantly, and particularly political opponents in some sections of the media, that want to keep harking back to the to the past. Is, you Gavin, know, is had, Gavin Riley a political opponent of Sinn Féin? I, I don't know. I'm talking about there's particular ones in particular independent media. You know, make no secret mm. of it. They're just constant, constant, constant. But you see what I know. But, 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 no, but he, he asked, "What's the difference?" What's the difference between me. every time you ask me a question, you keep interrupting <laughs> me, Mike. <laughs> every, you know. Every single day there's an article now since Sinn Féin started rising in the post. But what they don't realise, and this is how out of touch they are with people themselves, they don't realise that people now see through that. People see through. Well, it might have worked years ago. Mm. And, you know, they'd have a sustained campaign, all sorts of vile about Sinn Féin in the run-up to election. And the day after the election, there wouldn't be a peep out of them because they got the results they wanted. They wanted Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael back in power. Uh. But, but people, right. what they don't realise now is that people see through them. But okay, I'll drop the question about the IRA and the gangs. Uh, what about the question about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? Uh, because your leader, Mary Lou Macdonald, hasn't ruled out going in, in, into coalition with them after the next election. No, she said, she said she's an adult. 
And whatever the results are, she will talk to everybody. She said there's people, there's political parties that we will be ideologically opposed to and it would be highly unlikely that we would ever go into government with them. But Sinn Féin are out to stand before the people and to go for every single seat that we can get because that's the only way you'll bring about the change that we want in society. I have my clinic this morning mm. and every single week, week, I mean, it's just frustrating for me, but it's also heartbreaking. You have the housing crisis. Okay. You have mm. three generations of family living in the house. Mm. You have 99,000 people waiting on hospital. I'll, I, 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 I'll, I'll ask you to leave it there because we're out of time. and I'm sure we'll come back to all of those issues tomorrow and unfortunately for weeks to come. Thank you indeed. Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath. That's our programme for today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. Maggie McGuire researched. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, Bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.